0: But there's a distinction to be made here I think between goals as navigational aids and goals as as destinations.
1: Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Thank you, listeners. We have just bussed through the 10,000 download mark. And uh, Igor celebrated this by sharing a gif of a dog bouncing up and down on Twitter. So um, that, that was pretty exciting.
2: Dog, nonetheless. It was Sorry, a the, corgi. Ah, the Queen's Dog. So it was
1: actually a sort of uh, international kind of doff of the cap to the the British. I appreciate that. I didn't even realise that. Thank you, Igor. Um, You're
2: most welcome.
1: (laughs) So thank you very much, listeners, and we really appreciate that. Today, it's really exciting, actually, for me. I've been reading our guest's work for years now, and we have with us today Oliver Berkman. And rather than me sort of do a, an unfair introduction, Oliver, could you just introduce yourself to the audience and sort
0: of tell them a little bit about what you do? Sure, I'll give it a go. Thanks very much for uh, inviting me on. I am a journalist and an author. I-, I write a column in the Guardian Saturday weekend magazine with the title, This Column Will Change Your Life, which I've spent mm-hmm. many years now trying to pursue people is the joke and was always meant to be a joke. <laughs> right. But, uh, I notice you
1: know, well, it doesn't say um, this column will change your life for the better. <laughs> right. Or in a significant
0: fashion. Right. Um, I'm flattered that you've been reading me for years, but it always makes me feel slightly old as well to, uh, to realise <laughs> that I've been doing it for a while. I do other things, other sort of magazine-type writing for The Guardian and elsewhere, and I wrote a book called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. I'm hmm. trying to write uh, another book, uh now that i can talk about and um i live in brooklyn new york despite being british i think is the only other salient fact it's a very uh, hip place to be i mean it sounds like the hippest (laughs) place on the planet well the part we live in is much more sort of it's very families you know it's very um people pushing toddlers in strollers
1: as as do i on a very regular basis so the antidote was obviously, we, I want to talk about that a little bit in a moment. And uh, so you're working on a new book and I don't know how much you can talk about that, but we're going to try and encourage you to talk about some of that, um, leak some of that um, early. Um, you
0: heard it here first. No, it's not secret. It's just it's secret. Uh, kind of, uh, it's kind of hard to, um, I feel like my elevator pitch is very bad at the moment, but I'll give it a go. Well, you can, you can try it out on us and we can see how yeah. we go.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get started here with a uh, question Uh, Oliver, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Also from my side, you've written for The Guardian and other outlets for quite a while now. If you were to pick one or two most surprising, counterintuitive findings from your work, what would it be? Or, Or not from your work, from the work that you've written about, in your work, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, no, I, I take a point. It's, it's what, what's been so striking to me is is to see certain patterns emerge across uh, mm-hmm. different different findings. And there is, I mean, we'll talk about it if you do want to talk about the the book that I wrote. But that there are sort of two or three kind of master ideas that seem to arise from everything that I'm drawn to. Um, it's not that I put those ideas into it, and it's not that it was sort of organized that way by the various scholars whose um, work I'm drawing on, but it just does seem to be what, what I seek out. I think one of these common threads is this idea of the ironic effect, just this general notion that there are lots of areas mm-hmm. in life where, you know, if you try to do things very hard with your conscious will, you get the opposite result. It's kind of unintended consequences, but it's a very specific kind of unintended consequence, right? It is the it is the opposite of your intention. So this is the idea that if you try really, really, really hard to be happy or to have fun or something like this, you're almost guaranteed to fail as a result of making the effort. And I, I, I do find this kind of recurring in all sorts of seemingly unrelated areas of research of you
1: know uh, my own life you know <laughs> so this is kind of largely what the antidote was about i might say it's this sort of idea of uh, the backwards law you know yes there's so many things in that book um that seem straightforward and i thought everyone had agreed on were good ideas and then you sort of come along and say well actually that might be the absolute opposite of what you should do in that situation so it's a very surprising kind of um experience reading it but it kind of it rings true for me like some examples mm of like focusing on finding happiness that sounds like quite a good idea um you know <laughs> someone said should i focus on something that i think will bring me unhappiness no i'd say no focus on finding <laughs> happiness that's and then having a positive attitude i mean that general i you know that's what we're telling kids all the time that's what i tell myself all the time trying to avoid failure worrying about death these are all things which i thought largely we'd kind of agreed on were um good ideas but you are saying there's a theme that sort of threads through these, which is that, that, that perhaps the opposite is going to happen. So I just wanted to talk about one really simple one, which was the idea. I mean, I actually, I think when I was listening to you talking about this on a podcast, you were, you were saying I was actually making a to-do list. And on, whilst I was listening to it, you were talking about how this is a really bad thing to do. And I was like, I'm, this is literally what I'm doing right now. Um, so, yeah. So like the idea of focus at making a list or making a plan or having a goal,
0: you know, that sounds like a good idea. Isn't it a good idea? <laughs> I'm I'm slightly alarmed that I was telling anybody not to ever make a to-do list. If, if that was the <laughs> I, 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 I renounce that opinion today. Um, goals are an interesting one because I think that, uh, you know, some of the things I wrote about in that book, I basically think are pretty much always a bad thing to do at any level of effort or intensity. Goals, I think, you know, first of all, it's more... It's more a question of degree. It's more a question of not over-pursuing uh, goals. Apart from anything else, I think in for some definition of the word goal, we can't help but be pursuing them all the time. And so it would be kind of futile to uh, come out entirely against them. But I think there are several different ways that you can see um, the the problems of, of focusing too much on them. The, the stuff that has some good solid backup in the, in the research is to do with, the sort of narrowing of focus, the fact that if you're um desperately trying to pursue a specific numerical target for your company, something like that, you, you sort of lose sight of whether you're actually doing constructive things or, or actually pursuing policies and that are going to cause long-term failure. There's a sort of ethical thing. It's definitely they've shown in, in experiments that when people have a more specific target to aim for in certain kinds of games and they're given the option of cheating, they're, they're more likely to cheat mm-hmm. if they have uh, the more... Specific goal to try to meet. I think there's a broader and maybe it would be pretty hard to get that far in in research into it, but there's a sort of broader point that um, there's something wrong about uh, living your entire life focused on future points at which you're going to achieve the things that you, you consider fulfilling. Right? There's there's something about sort of being angled into the future like that mm, always sort of thing yeah. right right that makes it hard to you know savor the present moment uh, this is a sort of um phenomenon of setting very strenuous goals for yourself meeting them and then feeling you know uh, one minute's pleasure before you realize you have to set a whole bunch a whole bunch right. more there's a distinction to be made here i mean tell me what you think but there's a distinction to be made here i think between goals as navigational aids and goals mm. as as destinations i think there's lots and lots of arguments against seeing the achievement of certain goals as, as like why you're doing anything you're doing but when it comes to helping oh, you yeah. select how you're going to spend today i think there's no ro- nothing wrong in having a goal as a, as a sort of organizing principle
1: having a to-do list is okay is what you're saying
0: <laughs> it, is, it is it depends how you relate to it as always yeah, with these yeah. Things, doesn't that right i mean if, if you if you get up in the morning and you decide that no matter how much ends up on your to-do list you've got to get to the end yeah. of it by the end of the night. Like, that's just a bad recipe for yeah. happiness productivity Word, yeah. you know that's
1: more. interesting though like when you say um a goal is essentially like a, f- uh, a focusing tool and when you focus i suppose that's the narrowing you're talking about you can't focus on something without stopping focusing on something else <laughs> um, you, you know so
0: it, there's a cost with focus yes absolutely no totally and this is another sort of this idea of opportunity cost and the inevitability of tough choices maybe we'll come on to it this is kind of part of what's in my um in the book i'm trying to work on at the moment uh, you know that mm, yeah. the, the definitely a lot of the time it's just a question of being aware of those trade-offs rather than thinking that you could ever uh, avoid them yeah, right. You, you, but you, to focus on anything, you have to not focus on other things. And it's a question of sort of staying aware of the fact that, that your life is an entire system and the world yeah. is an entire system rather than that. This one thread that you've decided to pull and maximize is the only thing. There's, a, there's an anecdote in the book from someone I spoke to who, who reported being approached by someone who'd um, set as his goal to become a, a millionaire by the age of, I think, 35 or 40 and totally achieved it. But kind of alienated his children, lost his marriage, damaged mm, right. his health, you know, mm. and and so that's an example of success that isn't really success, because if you just sort of bear down on that one variable, you're going to not pay attention to how it's linked to, to all the others.
1: Yeah, so... So you could argue he didn't have enough goals. <laughs> he should
2: have had goals across all car- car- you know, disciplines of his life. <laughs> well, um, right, yes. or sort of holistic picture, it, right? right? Yeah. We had several people on the podcast um, who overall emphasized this kind of idea of a golden mean, or goal lock principle, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, not, not to focus too much on one goal, not to do, pursue something to an extreme, be it a goal, be it a behavior, be it a particular practice, uh, a particular way to think about the world. And I guess that's also something that figures in here, whether it's uh, thinking about the future and just visualizing yourself in the future and completely disregarding the present. The same, of course, can apply to the opposite. If you just in the present moment, never think about the future, uh, then uh, that can also be uh, maladaptive in the yeah. pursuing goals. Not 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 having any plans, not having any sort of orientation. Just wake up every morning. Ah, I'm just like oh, going around. I mean, you you. I guess we kind of have tools now that kind of remind us uh, already so much about what to do. Create so much structure that adding on an extra layer of control may be problematic. Uh, but uh, but in general. It seems to be that a lot of this discourse uh, uh, really ends up being about uh, moderation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally right.
0: And I and I think that the real question for me is, like, what is the most likely way in the society in which we live that someone is likely to sort of yeah. go off too far towards one extreme? That's right. And it's, it's certainly true that if somebody is so good at living perfectly in the moment and not anxiously worrying about the future that, you know, you can envisage problems that are going to arise but I'm not sure how prevalent that failing is compared to the uh, compared to the one at the other side I just wrote a little column about this actually you know that you get this kind of Advice from all quarters, including from me, I'm afraid, that, that you know, everyone should, have a, everyone should have a morning routine. You really have to have a routine. Oh, yeah. That's right. You have to do the exact set of things when you get yeah, up. To, and, right. Yeah, to-do yeah, right list. list. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then you have to like and then maybe in the rest of the day as well. The most important thing is routine and, and, uh, and rhythm. And of course, you know, there are people for whom that's absolutely essential as a way to give shape to an otherwise chaotic life. But in my experience, and I suspect most of the target market for this advice in the world, you know, there's something to be said for uh, loosening up a bit and being less dependent on incredibly rigid routines. My my big sort of life experience on this in this facet of life, as a result of becoming a parent a couple of years ago, is learning to get things done when I can't uh, completely impose rigidity on my. Schedule and and have the the perfect routine, and that's its own kind of power, you know. To to to, learn, to get better at that.
1: That's interesting. So you say, yeah, I, I suppose, Eagle. What you're saying is it's a balance between the two extremes, but but Oliver, you're saying it's it's worth focusing the sort of discussion on the the end that is likely to be more of a problem, and you know, so probably the majority of us are more likely to be. Uh, overly heavy on the routine side because it's just how society works and you go and go to work at the same time in the same place so in that case whilst it is a balance between the two things most people are probably likely to be erring on the side of routine
0: couldn't have said it better myself yeah and i also think there's like a psychological phenomenon where the advice that you're drawn to is like the advice that you is the advice that you don't it's the opposite of the advice that you need right Right. so um if you're a workaholic you'll read books on productivity about how to do more and more stuff you won't want to read books about how maybe you really need to reassess your relationship to work and um and on this as well you know if you're already really good at creating the perfect routine you'll you'll be obsessed about making it even more perfect
1: Um, I had one last question I wanted to ask you before we we get into um, the the current book project. It was uh, when I was reading The Antidote, there's this great anecdote. I don't want to mix those words up. There's an anecdote (laughs) in The Antidote um, about you riding on the tube and uh, calling out before the stop. Uh, so the whole carriage could hear the name of the next tube stop now as a as a fellow British person (laughs) I can't think of anything more embarrassing than uh humiliating myself on the tube so could you tell us why on earth you were doing that because it it sounds completely (laughs) nuts but there is obviously some sense to it
0: yeah sure well I I think there's some sense to it I don't know the 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 idea comes from a, a psychotherapist called Albert Ellis who I interviewed years ago but who's since died who's very elderly when i interviewed him and um he was one of the pioneers of one version of cognitive behavioral therapy and he had this uh, recommendation to people who were scared of embarrassment which is something that most mm-hmm. british people probably suffer from on some level uh, which was to <laughs> go onto the new york city subway i did it on the underground because of where i was living at the time and um and just speak out the names of the stations so that everyone could hear. Not even shout, you know, not not do anything. That's what's so interesting to me about this, mm-hmm. this scenario is there's nothing about it that, that really justifies the degree of uh, horror that it um, <laughs> evokes. Uh, yeah. You're not picking fights with anyone or, you know, um, you're kind of being helpful, really. Uh, Sounds if, quite a If, good if anything, is. yeah. Yeah, and yet to me, and clearly to you, and mm. whenever I've spoken about this in front of audiences it? it's like it's universal um even in america where people don't uh, suffer from fear of embarrassment in the same way everyone's just writhing at the prospect mm. of doing this which is really weird and that was kind of albert ellis's yeah. point you know you do it and you bring reality into a head-on confrontation with your beliefs and expectations and of course what happens is that nobody really cares. Nothing. Um, <laughs> you know, a couple of people look up at you like you might be crazy. Okay, fine, yeah. whatever. And you know this because you've almost certainly been on subway and underground carriages where somebody is doing something uh, out of the ordinary. And, you know, as long as it's not something physically threatening, you you just get on with your life. And And so... It's actually a really interesting form of, I mean, it's not quite the same logic as exposure therapy, as I understand it, but that's a sort of, might be colloquial way of talking about it. And you sort of see that it was your beliefs about the situation that were making mm. you so distressed, which is an ancient, stoic insight that uh, that, that was what Ellis was concerned to make people, interesting. Make people n- see. Interesting.
1: you never
0: uh, been on the tube
1: and had someone sitting opposite you calling out the name of the tube and think, "Ah, oh, this guy read my book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. But I've since come across some other things. There's something that's very popular in the sort of world of like Tim Ferriss and all those bio productivity hackers who I'm sure you uh-huh. know about. I, I, I don't recall who originated this, but this is the idea of them um, going to buy, buy a cup of coffee in a coffee shop and just very politely asking for a 10% discount oh. when you're paying, <laughs> which is another example of like that. I'm not even sure I could do that. Uh, oh no, that's even worse um, than the tube. I know, but you're not, you know, not demanding, not being rude. Just they say paying. no, you just, you just pay anyway, you know, nothing, there's no confrontation here, but it's just like the kind of presumptuousness <laughs> tolerating <laughs> your own negative reactions to that thought is so, uh, um,
1: in, I don't kind of I don't know if they were doing this when you were living here, but there's uh, a coffee chain in the UK called Pret-a-Manger, um, which yeah. maybe you're both familiar with. Now they have this um, policy where they're allowed to give coffees for free if they want to, a certain number a day. Okay. Right. So, if you go in and they kind of like you and it's a nice sort of rapport, they might give you a free coffee. Now, being kind of weird and British, that has actually made me be far less polite to people working <laughs> in pret a Manger Because my greatest fear is that they think I'm being nice to them to get a free coffee. Um, so it's actually completely counterproductive. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I, what I actually do is I'm really rude until I've paid... And then I'm like,
0: right, now we can talk. (laughs) No, I totally, totally empathize with that. I feel like I'm always thrown into uh, uh, these kinds of situations where it's it's backfiring because of Britishness.
2: I don't know if that would bug me that much. I mean, the the cultural norm violation is one thing, but if you have a purpose of getting a discount, that seems like uh, that licenses you to... Mm. Uh, to do more uh, I do wonder though, like if you're in a coffee shop sometimes if you go to a, a nice uh, uh, cafe uh, for instance, somewhere in Williamsburg and they would say, if you don't like this coffee we can make it again mm. and it's like, i never done that even if it was like the worst brew that I get, I would never do that because it's, it's like, that's a step that I would not cross <laughs> even though I mean, they even say that, you can do that right? Yeah.
0: right, yeah, they're not gonna care like, that's the thing, it's always like it, it, part of this is the spotlight effect, right? All of this is this idea that yeah. mm. this this notion that um, the whole world is thinking primarily about you and your problems. Yeah. Any time, which as soon as you say it out loud, you realize, or you ought to realize, is uh, is preposterous. They're thinking about their own problems.
2: So, yeah. yeah, but there's also a little bit about the social expectations and the uh, lack of comfort when you violate those expectations. I mean, what you realize is that nobody cares as yes. long as everything is kind of safe and uh, you don't hurt other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but I think to me that is a slightly different issue than just the spotlight effect on its own, which is yes. more about um, you feeling that you're constantly monitored by others. I want to switch now from this to mm-hmm. uh, a related topic Uh, we already talked a little bit about the productivity. And um, we talked about the to-do list. And I was really fascinated by this inbox zero point that you were making in some of your writing. For those readers uh, uh, and listeners, maybe of our uh, podcast who are not familiar with that, uh, there's this idea uh, that you should uh, always keep your email box at zero. And there's a system discussed by Merlin Mann and it seems like it was popular at the beginning, uh, but you think it's counterproductive, and you're right about that. So, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Why is, do you think this type of approach is counterproductive? I personally want to know because uh, I didn't even know about Merlin Man until I started reading about it in your, uh, in, uh, in your column, but I kind of intuitively did that, I guess. I tried to keep it at zero.
0: Again, I don't think that it can't possibly work, and I also think it's very important to say, it. Merlin Mann, I don't think would uh, sign up to most of the manifestations of Inbox Zero that were right. that was turned into. He made has made some really great contributions to sort of thinking about this stuff seriously, and in fact, he turned away from that's Inbox right. Zero that's what right about precisely mm-hmm. for this for this reason. It's not about in the original formulation. It isn't about sitting on your email, you know, all day long. Zapping away any (laughs) email that crops up. It's it's more just about this idea that the sort of the default state to which your inbox should return should be should be empty. And I to this day to some extent practice that. Right, you know, something things should not be hanging around in your inbox as as partly a filing system, partly a to do list, partly a. Uh, you know memorabilia file of nice things that people mm. have sent you that these should be given their own you know places in your in your system right but I, the basic problem with inbox zero as it got manifested is is just a general basic problem with with efficiency I think and that 's where i am mm-hmm. trying to take this as I develop this in the book i 'm working on there are lots of critiques of efficiency uh, in other areas of life, but sort of macroeconomic things like the Way that the Jevons paradox, that I'm sure you'll be familiar with, that uh, in economics about how the, the more efficiently uh, fuel is processed, I guess, the more uh, energy efficiency leads to greater use of of, of, of resources of fuels because um, the system sort of becomes less expensive. To I'm not going to get into the economics. The point is, there's a general. <laughs> we'll put that in the show notes. People can <laughs> look that up themselves. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a general again counterintuitive ironic consequence to uh efficiency improvements which is that they can in the case of personal efficiency make you busier and right. make this make your life fill up with more junk and uh, the the um, and less meaningful stuff so the obvious thing about email and i've been there and done this is that if you get really really efficient at processing your email you get a lot more email it's not it's not rocket science it's just that um you know, you respond to emails much more reliably and often those responses trigger new responses that you have to then reply to. You get a reputation in your office or wherever it is for being a a, a responsive person who who will give you a quick reply if if, Mm. if you email them, so people do. And at the same time, you sort of get more and more emotionally invested in this idea that you're going to clear the decks. Mm. So it becomes harder and harder to just let a few things pile up. Um, So all the, everything's stacked against you really, whereas, you know, On those occasions that I've been a very, very inefficient uh, email replier, to this day I'm pretty bad, but um, you find sometimes that problems sort themselves out without you getting involved, or that something that seemed incredibly important and urgent uh, two or three days later does not seem uh, like it it is uh, so important or urgent. Um, You know, all sorts of different ways in in general in which becoming a super efficient machine uh, doesn't actually achieve Help you achieve what you wanted, which was presumably peace of mind. In fact, instead you become busier because you get faster and faster at mm. climbing up an infinite ladder, basically, and a more meaningful life. Because again, you 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 uh, attract into your system all this extra stuff that uh, is a distraction and gets in the way.
2: Whenever whenever I think about uh, emails, I'm thinking about the time before emails, and it's like, how did people live? 20 years ago. <laughs> and, you know, you know they, they had to send letters, uh, um, especially in academia, for those uh, uh, listeners who don't know as much about how academic papers are written. It's a long process of back and forth between co-authors, and you send uh, drafts of your manuscript to each other, and you get edits, and you edit them again, and again, and again, and then just maybe 10 or 15 drafts before uh, it gets sent to a journal. Now, back in the day, that took years. Mm-hmm. I mean, to some extent, uh, no, not for all papers maybe, but maybe it didn't take years because people may have been more thoughtful and instead of doing 15 drafts, they did only three or four. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you did send uh, the whole, you know, edited manuscript with the red uh, <laughs> ink uh, and uh, lots of corrections that's offered to people in other countries, let's say from the US to Japan or from Spain to Morocco, I don't know, uh, wherever the scientists were at that moment. And somehow they did <laughs> produce less of a quality work right right and that yeah, always I mean, strikes
0: me well no but it's a very vivid example of it right the comparison with snail mail because right. it makes perfect sense if you have to if it's really laborious to write a letter it makes perfect sense that you'd want to replace that with email where it was really fast but then you get a version of the jevons paradox kicking in which is that when something becomes easier to do people do it more often and more people do it I mean, and suddenly it seems totally obvious what was going to happen yeah. when email was introduced, with the low costs of both time and money associated with it. That uh, it was going to become a far more appealing way of. It was going to suck all other work into it. Into it uh, more. I guess the
1: the uh, the question springs to mind is why, when we become more efficient, then we just sort of chill out, right?
0: <laughs> you know, yes. Well, well, this is yeah.
1: Yeah, because I mean, like in Eagle's situation, you know, they're producing. You know, you're talking about in the past, they were. It would take much longer to make a, produce a high quality paper. Why uh, is it just not freeing up time that people can spend on other things?
0: Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, I've got various thoughts myself, but yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the big question. Uh, there's a very famous paper by John Maynard Keynes about um, how uh, you know, right about now, or in a few decades from from now, uh, we all ought to be working. No more than fifteen hours a week because mm-hmm. right. the, the growth of wealth would be would have counted for I mean, uh, all our needs. And he thought the big problem was going to be how to manage all the leisure time without going insane. <laughs> well we've solved um, that problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. And I think you know the obvious Netflix. Way of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. But people just find new things to need, right? I think that the problem here is that the is that the the, the simplest way of stating the problem is that the 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 definition of enoughness of what counts as enough. Is not yeah. fixed, it's floating. And That's we right. are just, the economy and our socioeconomic situation pushes it higher, but I think human nature just pushes it higher too. Well, right? Habituation
2: I mean, is uh, part of that. Yeah. yeah, right, right. But also,
0: like, why would you not want to publish five papers instead of one if it seemed like you could?
2: You well, there is an there's... argument about that. In a uh, uh, go back to this idea of replicability, one of the arguments uh, uh, why there may be a... Uh, uh, a crisis, if there is a crisis, I think it's probably healthy to think about your assumptions, but if you think about it as a crisis, some people make an argument. All the way. Maybe if you would have published less, that mm-hmm. would uh, help people to be less focused on just producing and thinking uh, about the meaning of what they're doing and why they're doing it. Yes, yeah. You know, there's this fast food and slow food movements. So it's almost like fast work and uh, <laughs> slow work, I guess. I mean, and yeah, at least in yeah. academia, that's the case. I, but but there is still the, the the issue that you grapple with, and I think it's even more prevalent outside of the scientific uh, circle of scientists, uh, outside of the academia. Is this uh, the social comparison that you you know, if you don't do it, uh, somebody else will do it, and then they will be evaluated based on the um, how much they produce and how efficient they are, and they will get the race and uh, they will be promoted, uh, and so on. And I think that is possibly one of the reasons uh, people become like a hyper-focused then on this goal as one easy way to create more and uh, and getting more money, I guess, to some extent, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. more resources uh, uh, for getting that there are other resources they could, uh, or time is actually the most limited resource that they could spend yes. it differently.
0: Oh, I was just going to say one of the problems that I'm constantly grappling with writing this book, which takes some of these ideas and takes them into some other places as well, is that you know the obvious response to anyone telling you to slow down or to um, you know face the tough choices that you have to make in your life, and try instead of trying to have it both ways, is that you know we live in a system that. Forces people to do this. That it's uh, it's That's a very right. fortunate few who can decide to to only do one or two of the things that the demands that uh, bear down upon them. That you sort of feel like you have to do them all just to just to stay afloat.
2: That's right. But so, what uh, are there solutions? You I mean, are there any solutions you were able to come up with? Or thoughts uh, as you're writing the book, uh, what kind of counterpoints uh, can you make here?
0: What can we do? <laughs> I think the thing you have to do is. I think it's about, a, it's about a shift in perspective, right? So it's about um, confronting the, the hard truth. It's about uh, sort of seeing what it really means to have finite amount of time, finite amount of energy, mm-hmm. uh, attention, and recognizing that you're already always making tough Choices. This is where right. I get a little bit existentialist and try to <laughs> try to understand Heidegger in order to communicate what he was uh, trying to say. Let's maybe not go there, but um, this idea that the difference is between stumbling blindly along in the in the hope that you're somehow going to get it all done, that you're going to never have to make any trade-offs or sacrifices, while actually making them all the time, uh, mm-hmm. versus being much more conscious of. That and I think that you know there's quite a long-standing um, philosophical idea in philosophy that it is the confrontation that uh, brings that makes life more meaningful. It isn't entirely based on how fortunate your position in society is. You know, in principle, right. even if you are, you know, Viktor Frankl in the concentration camp, the meaning comes from how you understand and what you confront about your circumstance, as against what you deny obviously very easy for the rest of us to say that that's what you do when you're in a concentration camp but but I think that there's a sort of there's a truth to this principle that applies absolutely regardless of your situation right. and then it's going to be a lot easier to implement
2: <laughs> if you're uh, if you're in a relatively fortunate situation Whenever I think about, for instance, uh, wisdom, and we'll get to that in a second, I think of uh, this meaning and reasoning strategies to become more mindful about the reality. But that's effortful; that that uh, costs you resources. You and and I think humans like this misers. We don't really like uh, if if you don't if you don't have to, we don't do it. Right. uh, Because uh, uh, that's how we, uh, some people say that's how we evolved, uh, that we have to uh, be, uh, we try to be cost efficient to preserve energy. uh, Or maybe we are just lazy. Uh, So, so so like uh, constantly being mindful and aware also has a cost, right?
0: Yeah, well, it's a really, it's a really big problem for anyone saying become conscious of your Situation so that you can see your limited resources because you need some of those resources to to become conscious. I think, you know, in my wildest dreams, and I'm not really claiming this is going to be the case, but you know, a book like this, if it really works perfectly, can just sort of jolt people's Mm. perspective in a way that is relatively lasting and does not require them to put. Half of their energy into just keeping it in mind that it sort of can be there can be a kind of an epiphany. Uh, I right. certainly had I certainly had them reading some of the authors and thinkers that I'm, you know, channeling in this book, and that would be my that would be my sort of greatest ambition for it. I think. Do, do we do we know the title of this book, or is that top secret? No, the working title <laughs> is four. The working title is four thousand weeks because that is a oh. than a, a roughly eighty year old. 80 year life expressed Ooh, in that's in weeks um, quite chilling yeah i'm slightly concerned that it might stop people wanting to buy it it's <laughs> terrifying. so it it's might, been that might change big it. smiley face to sort of <laughs> counterpoint it and you be fine um
1: i wanted to go it's kind of last last thing i really want to pick your brain on is just sort of trying to <laughs> to get at the um what ties together some of the things you look at now like so we've just been speaking about busyness right um and so you wrote a piece for the guardian um about time management how it's ruining our lives so that sounds like a fairly sort of functional you know it's going to be about email it might be about you know don't write a to-do list or it might use some sort of functional things but this is how your article starts it starts with the eternal struggle to live meaningfully in the face of death entered its newest phase on monday in the summer of 2007 So, um, that, that, that kind of just gives listeners a sense of, you're not really dealing with things like email here. You're thinking about much broader, bigger ideas about, kind of well the title of the book you're talking about that's the length of a life essentially so you're, you're always sort of zooming out to these really big fundamental ideas about how we are limited and a lot of this ties in with the idea of you know wisdom you know we have to accept our limitations we have to sort of be intellectually humble i guess what i'm interested in is was there a moment when you went this is sort of my theme or did you you know battle to to shave off the (laughs) unnecessaries and then decide that this is what you're going to focus on because it's definitely a theme there isn't there and how did that emerge
0: oh it's such a great and sort of flattering question i don't know that i can give a coherent answer to it i've certainly never consciously sat down and decided i was going to focus on one terrain and not Another. I mean, I think the origins of this for me are in just, you know, a natural tendency towards generalism and mm-hmm. not wanting to, which, by the way, is a good reason to be a journalist and I think a good reason to focus on psychology because mm-hmm. they're all slightly sort of cheating ways of pretending that you do one specific thing while, <laughs> while continuing to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to do all of them. Um, <laughs> and then I think I've just sort of discovered, I think, um if it doesn't sound immodest, I guess that whatever I'm bringing to the party I think is this kind of interest in or ability at connecting the everyday stuff to these big themes. I don't claim right. you know, to be a philosopher who can penetrate the big themes in a sort of original way myself and I don't claim to be an experimental social psychologist who is um, discovering the objective truth about how the, the, the practical stuff works but I think that sort of bridging is has always been really uh, I've always really liked it. And that introduction that you read out is, I mean, hopefully when you read the end of that paragraph, it's kind of funny that, to sort of start off talking about the meaning of life and end talking about inboxes. But it's that kind of, <laughs> on the one hand, it's kind of funny to be talking about the meaning of life in the context of email. On the other hand, like, that, that's where the meaning of life um hmm is felt or is or its absence Benefits. is, Res, is yeah. felt yeah and i'm i'm acutely aware that especially the book i'm reading writing but also um a lot of the other stuff i write i am sort of basically just trying to write about me in life and i know it sounds very on the one hand it sounds ridiculous you know why would you do that but on the other hand i'm not quite sure why you would do anything else so um <laughs> yeah uh, it's it's um i i, I do sort of I do think about these things like just in my personal Mm -hmm. life and sort of grapple with them a bit. And, uh, and so, yeah, and I think that idea about limitation that's what's coming out as being fundamentally the theme of, of this book. It is about limitation and the sort of paradoxical relationship to our limitations that, that kind of denying them is, is not a good way to transcend them. You can't transcend them, but that actually a real kind of, clear-eyed confrontation with them gives a huge amount of meaning to life you you were saying how um, essentially we have to
1: accept our limitations but but the productivity culture is making this alternative promise isn't it it's saying there are no limits you don't have to accept your limitations you can do everything
0: right yes exactly Um, sometimes explicitly and some and more often implicitly it's this idea that if you it's efficiency and productivity as a as an alternative as an apparent alternative to confronting the, the the truth about the trade-offs that you're going to have to make. Um, right. And it's and it's not only impossible and a sort of, you know, and therefore not a good idea to pursue it, but it has the opposite effect because you postpone, it, it, it encourages you to postpone this question of, like, do I want to be doing this particular task, working in this particular job, being in this particular relationship? If you sort of think that you'll always get to do it all there's a quote from wendell berry the um, environmentalist and author that i use in this book which is that um, people who think there'll always be more time later never make the most of anything um which is i think sort of sums it up for me pretty nicely do you think
1: people that believe that they will have another life after they die have a different relationship to sort of time management and productivity and is this like well you know i they don't feel that sense of kind of uh Limitation because they think they're going to be around longer.
0: Uh, This is a really interesting thing I've been thinking about recently a little bit. I have been reading some writing from religious background, and Mm. you know it makes sense, right? You would assume that if you believed in eternal life, that Mm. um, you would just see all this as a kind of a dress rehearsal. Doesn't matter that much, or at least you know you can just do what you can with this life because the real thing is is coming. I believe that has been something that. People have believed in a widespread way at various points in history. What I keep encountering in the stuff that I am reading, which I think is I mean I there's some Buddhist stuff but I, but I'm really thinking more relevantly here I think about um, writing from a Christian background primarily, is a, is a real confrontation with finitude and and limitation and and a kind of putting aside whether you can believe certain doctrines from a from a given faith you know just a generally very salutary kind of focus on the sort of inevitable frailty of human life which i guess you know is drawn partly as a contrast with with eternal life and with a contrast with with um with the divine you know i keep waiting to run into one of these writers who's a franciscan monk or a yeah, or, or, you know, brought up in a Christian tradition or someone telling telling me that, you know, because you're going to live forever, you don't need What's to worry about it? actually, <laughs> No, what they're all usually talking about is, you know, um, we are trying to outrun our limitations, and they would say that one of the great benefits of religion, maybe the great benefit, is, that, is as a kind of birth in which, you know, or a, a port where we can all take refuge and be valued and seen as worthy, regardless of our limitations. Mm. Now, whether that's, mm. the, whether that's the answer to limitation that you want to go for, mm. it, I think you can't deny that it's, it takes the limitations seriously,
2: rather than um, pretending otherwise. So um, yeah, I don't know where I'm at on all of that. It's interesting because it could be also that these are two different parallel questions that uh, can it coexist. It's not I it, I don't necessarily see the contradiction here. In the sense that there's one issue I mean imagine you like try to you 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 see that there is limitation to what you're doing and uh, you want to be, on one hand, programmatically efficient. Uh, You counter it by becoming efficient, by using some tools, external devices or some training uh, based tools. At the same time, independent of the goal that you try to achieve in the moment you may or may not be thinking about the bigger picture in life and uh, the meaning that your life has. And I guess, I mean, I can I can see how this kind of compensatory mechanism to account for limitation, which is what some of the efficiency strategies are about, is something that can coexist with a Idea of having greater purpose, greater meaning revaluation of if your job is act, uh, the right thing for you or not, yeah. and I can also see how those things you know you you may have one but not have another i mean they, they seem to be completely orthogonal. Uh, in my opinion,
0: I mean, I think I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying. Tell me, it, but it makes mm-hmm. it makes me think. I mean, in a, in a very mundane sense, I think it would be worth pointing out that yeah, I'm not saying in this book, and I don't think any of us are saying that that it's that there are never any useful efficiency improvements that you can make right, to yeah. a to, to a life, to a system, to a society. It, it, it's to do with the nature of the investment in it. You know, it's to do with it's to do with what you're what it's facilitating psychologically. And always when I'm writing about this stuff there's a little voice in me thinking like I hope this is lots of people screw up and not just mine. <laughs> <laughs> Does yeah. anyone else think this? <laughs> I am actually I'm pretty confident when I look around at yeah. uh, productivity culture that it is not just me that is using this as a sort of a um or has used this as a kind of a to facilitate denial, I'm, I'm fairly yeah. confident that that's very <laughs> widespread. But yes, the, I think that anything that I, and it probably goes back to the stuff in the antidote too, right? I mean, there are probably ways that a person who has a completely different and super healthy perspective on all this stuff can relate to all the um, practices that I criticize in a fruitful way. But right. the ones that I was suggesting in that book are for all the people who've, uh, who've tried that and want
2: to do something else. Yeah. Yeah, no, i mean, just saying that uh, you know, you if you uh, think about the meaning of life or, or what you're doing, it's not like that you should be scared if you, at the same time, try to compensate or find ways to become efficient to make some to do lists or, or whatnot. Right. As long as you do it to a degree and have uh, mindful of why you're doing that instead of using these yeah. tools, and I guess that's what you're yeah. saying. You yeah, just yeah, use yeah, these yeah. tools to counter uh, the. To avoid thinking, to postpone thinking about the big question.
0: Yeah, as ever, it's not what you do, but how you do it, right? I that's think right. that's, uh, that's yeah. right. As the, yeah. as the song yeah. goes. Um, <laughs> sh-
1: shall, I, shall I read a quote from Nietzsche from uh, your article? It's, it seems relevant. It says. Uh, yes how no i'm just going to pretend this is from my memory this isn't written down in front of me it's just it reminds me of something nietzsche once said i was very Um, happy to get him to give me an interview to be honest that's yeah very very good i had been cleared with his agent um says how we labor at our daily work more ardently and thoughtlessly than it's necessary to sustain our life because it is even more necessary not to have leisure to stop and think haste is universal because everyone is in flight from himself
0: <laughs> it's good, he was it? pretty good
1: yeah yeah, it's yeah. yeah. so i suppose Igor, you're saying if you're in haste from yourself because you haven't taken tough choices and you're you know that's one thing but if you have kind of worked out what you're what what is it meaning what is meaningful to you and then you're from that looking for efficiencies about how you progress that that's quite different
2: yeah i mean it's just like that you can attack uh your inherent limitations uh, on multiple levels, uh, more mm. practically in a given moment and yeah. more abstractly in terms of the uh, higher level meaning of what you're doing. One is not a substitute for another. Mm. Right. And I,
0: and I would, yeah. yes, I would only say that I think that actually, you know, um, to, to pursue efficiency within those bounds is, is not to attack your limitations, it's to take full account of them and, uh, you know, maneuver well within your mm room for maneuver um right,
2: right, right. and yeah yeah absolutely yeah. so here's another question do you think your column changed people's lives i mean in other words uh, what <laughs> <laughs> kind of uh reactions i mean this sounds, this sounds like a yes of course <laughs> um, yes single, and, like, single, single word art yes, yes. Right. Uh, what kind of audience reactions uh, do you typically get when you write about this type of uh counterintuitive topics
0: it's very self-selecting so you know i get a little bit of I get a little bit of hostility on Twitter, but mainly what you get is you do hear from the people who like what you've done. Uh, so that caveat is just to say that I'm not, you know,
2: maybe, maybe there are swathes
0: of people who really hate it, but uh, still. But too late to do anything we just, about. <laughs> Well, yes, exactly. Are we just about to have a culture where they don't feel obliged to abuse me for that. Yeah. Uh, for that, fact? <laughs> I, I do receive uh, quite a lot of um, email that is really sort of you know means a huge amount to me because. It's in those one-to-one communications that um, that you you do feel that you're not just writing things and sending them out into the ether. Mm. I think the most common kind of response is not "Oh wow, I'd never thought about this before," and you, a genius and a guru, have uh, opened my eyes. <laughs> I, think, I think the the primary response is like, "Yeah, this is what I've been saying for ages," and like it's and yeah. and uh, in in a, and it's nice to see it expressed in the way that you expressed it. So I think you know it's usually a process of Resonating with people that that uh, leads to a these these positive reactions, not not of sort of uh, dropping wisdom on their heads. Right, right. right. Um, and for me too, that's always been a very powerful thing. You know, reading somebody who who clarifies something that I have been sort of stumbling my own way towards. I will say, just because it's been so moving and wonderful, I don't want to imply that this is the kind of thing that happens. Uh, in my email inbox on a daily basis but i have sometimes heard from people who read the book who and this is fascinating to me it's fascinating about how ideas work and how communication works because i've heard from some people who have been helped or given solace or a bit more direction or something from what i've written in the midst of personal crises and tragedies that but this is the crucial point where I'm pretty sure if I was going through that crisis or tragedy, I would be useless. Like, I don't think this is because I'm a great person and they are getting a little bit of my uh, aura when they read the book. I think it is like these ideas, drawn from philosophers for millennia and you know, writers and poets and all the people I'm quoting in the book, like, these ideas have like a power of their own, Mm, and there's something incredibly fulfilling to be able to pass it on to people who need it, again, in ways that people who i suspect are vastly more mentally strong than mm. than i am and that just says something very interesting to me about the sort of freestanding power of good ideas as opposed to mm. individual authors of them or communicators of them but it also sort of talks
1: about access and translation doesn't it because if you're pulling an idea from seneca or something and you're putting it into a column that someone might read you know over their coffee on saturday morning you know that, yeah. that that's um that's where you come in <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, exactly. It's that sort of bridging messenger, whatever. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's the that's the one thing that I can do. So it's very um, it's very heartwarming and and uh, exhilarating when you get a sense of it that it worked.
2: We talked a little bit about the, to, 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 uh, alluded to possible cultural differences. Americans, uh, UK audience, uh, have you uh, noticed any differences in reactions you may have received? Uh, given that you know, like a lot of people in North America now read the Guardian. Yeah. yeah. So, any any differences in type of uh, responses you receive from them?
0: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, certainly with the book that it, it was, you tended to get very, very fervent reactions in a positive way from Americans. Not not because <laughs> this cult, precisely because this culture is so dominated by sort of positive thinking. That's right. You know, it was never going to be a book read by the majority of Americans, but, but the people who found it uh, were going to feel passionate about uh, about that perspective. More generally, I just think, you know, everything is more extreme here. I mean, this is not a remotely original thing to say. But so if you're writing about the sort of insanity of hyper work culture and of productivity right. and uh, all these things, you know, it's going to be being felt, I think, a little bit more here in general and, mm-hmm. uh, back home in the UK. Not that it, not that it isn't there. So, you know, on the one hand you have to be a little bit careful not to be, if I, I hope to write for both these audiences and audiences further afield. So I don't want to make it sort of, to pick up on problems that are only problems in, mm-hmm. you know, New York, San Francisco and Washington DC or whatever. But, mm-hmm. but, um, but I think, you know, you do see things in slightly more, uh, Extreme terms. I also think it's very useful for me to be slightly at one, at a slightly at an angle to the culture. You know, I think it's it's kind of useful to be just a little. I mean, you know, I'm not, one is not very much of a foreigner as a Brit in Park Slope, Brooklyn, but uh, to a small (laughs) degree, you know, you're um, slightly, there's a slight friction there, which I think can be quite useful.
2: Yeah, I'm more of an observer. So you mentioned today before the uh, we started our podcast that you also have a new piece coming out uh, in The Guardian. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what this part is about. I think it uh, connects nicely to some of the topics we talked about earlier.
0: Sure, I'll give it a go. Uh, the, 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 the headline of this piece is um, how the news took over reality.
2: And I'm uh, trying
0: to... Get at this phenomenon, which I think uh, seems to have um, colonised the brains of—I don't think necessarily the majority of people, but lots of people I know, and to some extent mm-hmm. myself. Maybe you guys—you can tell me. Um, oh, absolutely. We, we, <laughs> okay, good, good, good. <laughs> which is this this idea that like that the world of the news is somehow more. Real, it becomes the center of gravity of more people's lives, you know, so that it's sort of more real to them than their neighborhoods and families and uh, and friends and work. And you sort of spend, you know, half the day on social media, psychologically identifying with this uh, world of sort of colossal dramas. A lot of this is kind of post twenty sixteen, right? It's because we do right. feel now like we're living through history, and this notion arises that you have a kind of almost, if you're if you're privileged enough to not have had your life completely ruined by by the various forces sweeping through the world, you have a sort of moral obligation to uh, agonize and emote and uh, yes. and post on, on yeah, and one of the, uh, to a certain degree, again, moderation, you know, I, to a certain mm-hmm. degree, I think there's a case to be made there, but what I was exploring in this piece is the idea that actually it can go too far in ways that are not just damaging to your personal peace of mind, but actually damaging to the health of a democracy and to the, the sort of health of the world. And I, I look at some work by a great political philosopher called Robert Talese, who has a mm-hmm. book coming out called Overdoing Democracy. That, that He sort of makes the case there about democracy, which is kind mm-hmm. of similar to the case I make about happiness in, in my book, which is that, like, there is something about the functioning of democracy that works best if you are not doing it all the time, that it kind of needs a big hinterland, a big communal societal world where we relate to each other in ways other than as political partisans and political actors so that we can then, you know, hash out these important political questions uh, in a successful way. And when you come to see everything as politicized, you get into the sort of culture war situation. that it feels like we're in uh, now where everybody's defined entirely by their politics. And, you know, I can tell you every political position of the person standing behind me in the line at the artisanal coffee shop in Brooklyn, because they're standing in line at an artisanal coffee shop in brooklyn yeah. and uh, this, is a, this is a problem this is a problem
1: yeah. yes i thought um one way to counter that that is to make a big noise uh, in, uh, one way to counter this sort of harsh <laughs> tribalism is, is <laughs> this
2: is a tri- uh, trump's idea to make a big noise. Wait, no, no,
1: no, i haven't finished that <laughs> sentence don't edit don't, don't make the cut there to so make a big noise when you, um, agree with an opinion which is outside your tribal group. And obviously that's hard and there's all sorts of pressures to not do that. But it's almost like rather than that seems like a, a duty that we all really have. Mm. Like if, if someone from the opposite sides has an idea that you think is a good one, I think we owe it to everyone to, to make a big stink about it because, and I know it's difficult to do, but that, I don't know, that feels like that could be. A step towards this this harsh separating into these d- distinct tribes because you know I, I will e- even on topics that I haven't really thought about I'll just I have a list of topics that belong you know of policies that belong to the the party that I vote for and I just go with them rather than me thinking through each individual policy and it means there's no kind of meaningful dialogue so I think I'm trying to make the effort it's not easy because everyone who you like and care about uh, looks at you strangely when you do that obviously which is why we
0: don't do it but um, I think that's <laughs> that's got to be helpful. I think it has. And I don't want to dissuade you. The, the thing that I'm going to say that is kind of a, maybe a slight pushback against that. I'm, I'm now really parroting uh, Robert Talese. I don't want to take credit for this idea myself, but yeah, I think what he would say here is that in a way, what we need to do is not so much, you know, uh, one of the things people say a lot about getting over our partisan divides is that we need to have conversations with people from our, up, on the other side and, you know, Brexiteers right. need to talk to Remainers and uh, Trumpists need to talk to members of the Democratic, you know, hashtag resistance on Twitter and all these things. Mm. And and that's a little bit related to what you're saying, you know, that sort of crossing of a, of a divide. I know it's not exactly mm. the same. And, and he actually says, like, well, actually what we need to do, I don't think he disputes that, but what he would say we need to do as well is to spend time with people where where politics just doesn't enter into the discussion at all right. Mm-hmm. right? so can you go to the football match where you just have no idea whether the people to your left or right yeah. are remainers or brexiteers? can you can you participate in parts of the Twitter community where you're so completely focused on talking about you know, Doctor kitchen. Who, that you just yeah. don't, yeah, right. That you just don't know. Um, and of course, part of the problem with what's happened to the sort of sorting of society is that that's quite hard to do. Like, actually, yeah. if you go and seek out a whole bunch of people talking about Doctor Who, they probably do all the politics. But, but, yeah. but if you can sort of that that idea, and that's what we used to have, right? In neighbourhoods, you would you, the, you your friendship with the elderly gent down the road or whatever was not based on having Mm. conducted a full audit of all his positions and he probably had one or two pretty bad ones but it just didn't come up and that's useful for it not to come up all the time and in fact it was sort of
1: impolite wasn't it it used to be don't talk about religion and politics (laughs)
2: now
1: now that's all we talk about (laughs) exactly exactly.
2: it actually reminds me um, in philosophy uh, actually more in sociology there's this distinction goes back to uh, uh, 19th century uh, German Sociologist Tunis Ferdinand Tunis who talked about a uh, Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft as a societal civic society and communal uh, uh, society and um, uh, Putnam uh, one of the uh, sociologists for uh, political scientists from Harvard uh, yeah. has made this case in the twentieth century that we have this decline of communal groups so we don't have those groups anymore where you can talk about sports so you can just with people of possibly different background uh, where your identity is defined more in terms of the activity that you're doing on your neighborhood and not necessarily about Mm -hmm. your political arena it's like there's a much more focus on your individualism if you want and who you are and instead of you define every single action in terms of who you are like there's dramatic increase in individualism over the course of the 20th century that happened in the u.s and many other countries so maybe that's part of this. Yeah, I, don't know. I think that's, yeah, I think that's, I feel like that's totally right. I mean, the challenge is that
0: often I think is just the geographical thing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I made a very conscious decision to sort of embed more in my community a few years ago after sort of living with one foot out the door for a, for a long time. And I love it. I belong to a community choir here that is an amazing mixing uh, some, uh what, what's the phrase? Uh, melting pot of mm-hmm. of ages and uh, walks of life, and to a certain extent, ethnicity. And yet, I bet that I can tell you, I, I do not think there are very many Republican voters in that space. Yeah. So, you know, it's actually it's actually really hard because of ha- where we live now to to, yeah. to make to, to to do this. Take some thought, because we have sort of sorted ourselves physically right. into these. Uh, But I
2: think you're totally right. I mean, about what we need to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we sorted ourselves. I think that there's also a certain role of uh, the US government uh, sorting people based on taxation laws and some other. Criteria. Uh, There's some really interesting work showing how this kind of separation into low-income uh, ethnic uh, groups has happened over the course of the last uh, 50 years, in part uh, through uh, some financial incentives. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so that's it's, But it is uh, it is something that's very hard to work against if it is uh, happening both on the structural level the separation, uh, and on the individual level because of uh, possible uh, psychological shifts and focus more on yourself versus your community. Fascinating topic. So we'll look forward to the new Guardian piece and see what the reactions are like. Yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to that myself. I think.
1: <laughs> and, and the um and then the book, which we we think is going to be called Four Thousand Hours, as long as it has a big smiley face on it. Um, four thousand weeks. It's not
0: quite that bad. Four thousand hours would be. A, <laughs> I was yeah, going to say this a, podcast feels like short, it's been about four thousand hours. Would be, be a short life.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. Um. Right. Yeah. Do my math. You know, I actually teach maths as well. That's that's what's scary about that era. Um, <laughs> but um, I think we have probably come to the end of the. Um, uh, conversation. What do you think, Igor? Do you have anything else? No, this, is,
2: this is great. Oliver, this was such a pleasure to have you on our podcast. We talked about everything from Nietzsche and Heidegger uh, to emails and <laughs> business uh, and the US politics, of course. How could you forget the US <laughs> and British politics? Thank you so much uh, for being on our podcast today.
0: I really enjoyed it. Thank you for asking me. Thank you very much, Oliver. And
1: now it's time for a summary. So we started today talking about the ironic effect. There are lots of areas in our lives where focusing on one particular outcome tends to strangely lead to exactly the opposite of that outcome happening. For example, desperately trying to seek happiness seems to lead to misery. and Desperately trying to maintain a positive attitude can lead to over-vigilance resulting in a negative attitude. We looked in particular at one area of this, which was pursuing goals or rather over-pursuing goals in a narrow fashion. So whilst we might may well achieve a goal that we declare, we often end up neglecting other areas of our lives. And We might benefit from having a sort of broader, more holistic approach to um, getting where we want to in our lives. We looked at productivity culture, in particular, this idea of inbox zero and, and some of the limitations of it. And although it started out as a conversation about email, it tends to get at some bigger questions. Now, when we're being highly productive and trying to be as efficient as possible, aren't we really just claiming that we have no limitations and we're denying the obvious limits of um, humans in the 24-hour day. So perhaps busyness is often a sign of an unwillingness to face some bigger questions and accept some of the trade-offs that we might have to make. We finally spoke about how the news has overtaken reality and how our real lives can sometimes these days feel like a a less real version than the the news cycle and and we've somehow been obliged to become uh, solely political animals. One of the potential solutions of this that we discussed was engaging with other people in a completely apolitical fashion. maybe. Maybe it's joining a choir maybe it's a football team where we can begin to see each other as more human reach towards a shared humanity and not limit ourselves to only seeing others as members of a, a different political tribe stay tuned and please rate us on itunes and we look forward to speaking to you next time